Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. We are proudly sponsored by Peanut, the app that helps you meet like-minded women who are trying to conceive. It provides a safe space for women to build friendships, ask questions and find support. Peanut introduces you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in their journey. They provide access to a community who are there to listen, share information and offer valuable advice. Whether it's learning more about issues that affect fertility or support following pregnancy loss and miscarriage, Peanut is a place to connect with women who understand. Here at The Worst Girl Gang Ever, we strive to open up the dialogue surrounding miscarriage and pregnancy loss. Peanut shares this ethos and we recommend downloading their app for more advice, information and support. You can download their app for free. All you need to do is head to peanut.app.link forward slash girl gang or find it in your app store. Hello everybody, welcome to another special podcast episode for Baby Loss Awareness Week. In this episode we chat to Zoe Clark Coates, who you may well be familiar with. As you can imagine, we had an awful lot to talk about, so we've had to split our chat with her into two episodes. So enjoy listening and please do tune in tomorrow to listen to the second half. Here we are. Zoe, thank you so much um, for agreeing to come on our podcast. We feel like you're sort of baby loss community royalty. So thank you so much for giving up your time for us today. Thank you for inviting me. No, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You are, you're like the guru, the baby loss. It's one of those subjects that I think no one wants to be an expert in the field in because you don't want anyone to go through this harrowing thing. But you know, when you are going through it, it's really nice to know the fact that you're not alone and that people Mm. get it. And I think that's what my voice kind of does for the lost community. It makes people realize that they aren't alone and what they're feeling is completely normal. Mm. And the most common thing I get asked them is, am I going mad? Is this something that's unique to me? And just to have somebody to be able to reassure you the fact that it's normal and the fact that there is a light at the end of the tunnel is often what keeps people going in their moment of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking actually just before we started this podcast that there will, this is a community that is a very strong community now, but there is new people joining this community every single day and they're finding Mm -hmm. their way around, you know, as, as a, someone who 
they're kind of it's like finding a way around in the dark isn't it and that you are that ray of light to so many people and you have been and that's just amazing so but for all those people who are just joining the community would you be able to give us an overview of who you are and what you've done so far yeah absolutely so um I've personally gone through loss, um, which is what has put me on the path I'm on. But actually, prior to that, I was a trained counsellor. So my mum is a therapist. I trained as a counsellor many years ago. I'm not intending to ever use my skills professionally. Just basically, I did it as a hobby because I was so interested in the topic of therapy, really interested in the dynamics of how talking can help the brain process trauma. So that's why I trained and um, then went into the corporate world, um, ran an international events, PR and marketing company with my other half, with my husband, Andy, and um, was loving life, loving what we did. And um, after many years of marriage, we decided to try to have children. And um, presumed, like I think many people do, the fact that your journey to hold a baby in your arms will be easy. All the way through school and education, you're just told, you know, you're told how not to get pregnant. You never told the complexity of um, going through loss or infertility or any of these subjects. Mm. I think it's something that um, we kind of rob people from, actually, because I think we should all be shown the truth, the whole truth about what it is to expand your family. I think in a way it's, I don't know if it's actually consciously doing this, but it's like softening things for people Mm -hmm. and oh, don't tell them about that because in all likelihood it won't happen. Mm -hmm. But actually when you give someone a broad knowledge, it's giving them power. It's giving them correct expectations of what might lie ahead. And I personally would have much rather had that at school. So when I hit Mm -hmm. the ground of, infertility I could know what was what I could do my options and then when I Mm -hmm. hit miscarriage I would know that it was a common thing and I would know where to go and who how to explore the subject and who to contact and how to make myself feel better how to self-care properly yeah and it's not just about it happening to that person as well if you're we're all educated about it then we can be more empathetic when it happens to people around us Mm. absolutely and so that was the position we were in. We just hoped the fact that everything could be okay. And um, tragically, it wasn't. Um, we lost our first baby. Um, and the bottom fell from our world. Yeah. But we handled that loss in a very different way to subsequent losses, actually. We almost pretended it didn't happen because I just mm. didn't want to be a statistic. Mm. I'd done some research then and, and found out how common loss was and just couldn't bear to think that we were that one in four. And, and so we decided to just kind of pretend it didn't happen, try again, and hopefully that first loss um, would be something we could work through later on, so to speak. And even though I knew that wasn't healthy, I was a trained counsellor, um, it was the way that we survived it, really. Yeah. And one of the things that I tell everybody is, you do whatever you need to survive. Yeah. And for us, it was kind of, let's just move forward, head down and carry Try again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we were blessed to get pregnant again really quickly. And this time it just felt really different. And I just totally believed that this time we would end up with a baby in our arms. We'd gone for all our scans. Everything was great. And um, 
we hadn't told everyone we were pregnant actually because I was planning this big surprise for Christmas because people hadn't known about the first baby. We'd been married for so long. People would just presume we weren't going to have children. So I had this big surprise planned for the whole family at Christmas. And then um, I started to bleed and um, instantly panicked and thought, mm. here we go. We're going through loss. We managed to get an emergency scan. And um, that showed our baby girl was kicking away. She was all happy, nothing wrong. And um, so we left with um, real relief, the fact that it was just one of those things, and but nothing was wrong. Yeah. And then within days, um, the bleeding started again and increased. And I just had this horrible sense that she died. Um, we went to A&E because it was a Saturday night um, when things got gradually worse. And um, they were very unsympathetic, very uncaring, said really inappropriate things. Mm. And um, it just left us with no support. They made us feel like we were kind of abnormal for be crying for a baby. And what we were actually asked was, why are you so upset? Is it because it's an IVF baby and you've paid? (gasps) Which, you know, now in doing what I do and doing so much campaigning I know those sort of things are said so regularly maybe not those exact words but really extremely inappropriate Mm. things that just make people feel yeah yeah, and make people feel shame for grieving and shame for hurting and um and that certainly made us feel that way Mm. um they couldn't do anything they offered us a scan for a week's time because that was the only time they could fit us in so they told us everything appears fine um I know what you're worrying about but you had a scan days before everything was okay and I was saying I just really believe she's died and um so we were told to just go home, wait a week, and then we'd have a scan that would reassure us everything was okay. Um, Clearly, I couldn't wait, like Mm. most people wouldn't be able to. So we started phoning private clinics, left lots of messages on the Sunday, and then got a call on the Monday morning from a clinic to say, come straight in, we'll scan you immediately. Mm. So that turned into the longest drive of our life, heading to that clinic. Um, We um, were ushered in fairly quickly, and... We could, it was a private clinic with a very different setup than the NHS had. And it got this giant screen opposite the bed where you were scanned. So not only was there a little screen next to us, there was a big screen. So me and Andy were just staring at this big, Mm. like flat screen. Mm. And um, we instantly could see our little girl, um, Darcy, on the screen. And, um, but then she kept on scanning and we noticed her heart just didn't seem to be moving. And, and it was just a really protracted moment. Anyone who's lived through it will mm. know that they don't say anything for some time because they're just trying to assess the whole situation. But I could tell from her face something wasn't right. We didn't understand why we couldn't see her heart beating, but having never seen a scan where you're seeing a dead baby we didn't know really what we were looking at we could tell something wasn't right we could tell something was wrong Uh, and then eventually she just uttered the words um I'm just so sorry um her heart has stopped beating Mm. and um and she's gone and um the world stopped and the trap door opened and we fell yet again and and we screamed and we cried and um we asked for a second opinion and um, the consultant came in shaking his head and it turned out he 
was able to watch the scans being done in a room upstairs. And so he'd oh. already seen what was happening and um, had come down to to share what he knew and what he was seeing. We were put into a room where we wailed, screamed, cried, phoned our family who did the same, who didn't yeah. even know we were pregnant. So oh, they were hearing funny. the news for the first time. And, um, and the nightmare began really, yet again. And we were back into that same place. But this time it was so much more real and so much more, I don't know, visual. And there was no denying it. There was no putting our head in the sand. This yeah. time we had to face it head on. And, it's, and you've got that bloody great big screen in front of you. I know, absolutely. Like, awful. It, it was heartbreaking, mm. heartbreaking. Um, we were given options. Did we want to go the surgical route or did we want to deliver naturally? And um, I chose to deliver naturally because of, I don't know, it felt the right way for us to to move forwards really mm. and I didn't want to just go to hospital and have her extracted from me I wanted yeah. it just to naturally progress and um that was a horrible week we had to go back for another scan and she'd How grown. many weeks was she we never actually revealed that okay. and I'll, t- I'll tell you why but she grew during that week and nothing prepared us for that but because the blood flow carries on going to the baby oh. and so when we'd gone for the scan she'd grown and so it was harrowing and we decided to um, go the natural route and deliver her. And that was harrowing and traumatic. We felt very alone and very scared because we were given so little information. That's such a yeah. common theme that comes from that, isn't it? The, the natural, natural miscarriage, um, natural management, sorry. It, yeah. the, the common theme is that people just do not know what to expect. They absolutely don't. It's a, it's, a full natural delivery. Mm. And I think when you hear the word miscarriage, you be- often people just think it's blood loss. Yeah. And it's not that. It's delivering your baby. It's delivering your child that you can then see. You visually can see them, hold them. Mm. Um, it's very different to what the world leads you to think a miscarriage can look like. And of course, a very early miscarriage can um be a lot of blood loss and less of a visual sign of a baby but the mum knows what's happening Mm -hmm. they know they're delivering they know that what they're going through is labor and the loss of Mm -hmm. a child and that's truly harrowing especially when you haven't got adequate um, medical support or the right people reassuring you that what you're even going through is kind of normal and natural because you feel like you're going to die because you don't even you're not even told how much blood loss is normal and Mm -hmm. so everything you're doing completely feeling about in the dark so not only you're trying to deal with the emotional trauma of it you're also trying to contend with the physical side of it Mm -hmm. with often very little information Um, and then the hormones that yeah. come alongside it as well. It's yeah. just, that carry so on many facets to absolutely miscarriage. It kind of annoys me that it's just such a small, simple word. And under it's like the tip of an iceberg, isn't it? Miscarriage is the tip of the iceberg, and then underneath it's just yeah, absolutely. And I hate the word miscarriage anyway. Yeah, I too. hate it because I think it it's got so many other connotations attached to it. And even if you look Your it fault. up in the in the dictionary, miscarriage means failed. Yeah. And um, I'm not 
a believer the fact that anything's failed mm. um, and so I think when parents often take on the guilt are they responsible I think anything that connects to failure of any type is very unhelpful and unhealthy in the recovery yeah um, it does lay all blame on the woman doesn't it they, it's hard they did it wrong. they didn't carry them properly yeah and so I'm a big believer in we should scrap it and come up with a new term anyway yeah definitely well while we think of a, an alternative word for miscarriage I actually pregnancy loss doesn't bother me as much as miscarriage. I don't know it doesn't bother me as much but still loss like you haven't lost, lost it, it. Have you? yeah oh, and I, I, oh where's I, my baby that I was carrying oh. and again I think anything that doesn't actually call it what it is a baby loss I've got a problem with um, because a pregnancy loss doesn't even constitute that there was a baby there mm-hmm. yeah and, that's um, true and so I, I think baby loss is the best um, word really yeah. in the fact that it says what it is you've lost a child you've lost a baby um, but yeah there'll never be a nice word name to be for done it, around it. language there There's so much work to be done around language. Oh my mm. gosh, our baby was referred to as product, yeah. products of conception. And That's even shit. when we clarified, because our baby was removed from me during a, like, what do you call it? Routine kind of, that's the one. And we even said she took it, she had it in a pot, she sort of showed us in a pot. And she said, oh, this is the product. And we said, sorry, do you mean the baby? And she said, the product, Yes. And like, if you're having that, if you're the parents of that baby are, clar- are asking you for clarification in those terms, surely you'd clarify that back in those same terms. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of our work of campaigning yeah. and changing things for the future, really, because so many people are on the receiving end of that. And it's, yeah. it's heartbreaking as it is mm-hmm. without adding other layers of trauma connected to the language that's used. Yeah, um, it's just awkwardness, isn't it? It's horrible. Part. Like they, they yeah. just don't know what to say for the best. But actually, it's, it's more heartbreaking for the person going through it. So just be more humane. And if you're working on an EPU unit, surely there should be extensive training into how to, to communicate with parents well, on an emotional but level. But we know there's not, don't we? Because when we spoke well, to Emma, the sonographer, be. she said that they learn that sort of, like the way to speak to women and that sort of etiquette, if you like. They learn it from their peers when they first start the job they have a mentor yeah exactly but you're right Mm -hmm. there does need to be training but then the 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 whole new guidelines that came out recently is is a good place good starting point yeah Mm -hmm. so Zoe following that second baby loss what did you is that when you started thinking right I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this but this can't go on not really we were okay. still in survival mode and we yeah, were still sure. in trying to um, see what life was going to look like on the other side of loss because it was very dark as I said it was very harrowing and you have no idea if you're going to recover from it if you're going to find joy again on the other side of it so it's definitely a survival um, yeah, time sort of, in anyone's life you have no idea at that point what, what you know once you've had more than one miscarriage you, you start thinking well is this am I ever going to have a baby am I ever going to be a mum and I don't know about you Zoe but for me it was less about mourning the loss of that little being and more about mourning the loss of motherhood I just could not imagine my life without having a baby and that was what yeah I think for about. most people 
Yeah, I think for most people, it's that simultaneous thing. It is the fact that grieving this life, grieving your precious child. But there's definitely another layer of, of grief too. And mm-hmm. that is the grief of will we ever get to raise a child in our home? And we for sure were experiencing that. We decided to try again. Mm-hmm. And um, that surprised me, actually. In all my training, um, the thing that they don't ever train you in is how there's this resilience that can rise up in people when they go through extensive baby loss. And instead of actually thinking, I can't try again, it actually becomes, you become even more passionate about needing to have a baby. And it doesn't detonate that um, ticking clock of wanting a child. In fact, it can increase it. Mm. That and it really shocked me, the fact that my desire for a child grew rather than was mm. suppressed, it even though I've gone through so much. doesn't it? It does. And it's not something that's often talked about. That's how strong I think we are as humans. And mm. and um, our desire to have a family can burn so deep that even if you go through something so heartbreaking, you're willing to try again. Mm. And so we were and we did. I think it shows how strong our instincts are, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Our sort of primeval guts, yeah. what we want from life, what we desire from life, what we need from life shows yeah. how unbelievably strong they are. And once you've created this space in your, in your home, in your family for a child, the thought of it not being filled by somebody is really painful mm, because mm. you've changed so much about your life often to even be in a position to have a child. Mm. And so the thought of not being able to aim that love at a, a little being in your home is agonizing mm. and so that often drives people forward to try again and it did for us and mm-hmm. we tried again and we lost our third baby and it was after the third loss that we thought I don't think we can do this again I just don't know if we can keep on trying this it felt yeah. like we were never going to bring a baby home how many times and you put yourself through it Yeah. And it becomes almost like self-harm. I think you start thinking, how many times am I going to do this to myself? Mm. And also you're so acutely aware of the pain in all your family who are walking this journey with you, that it Mm. doesn't only feel like self-harm. It feels like you're actually harming others around you because they're going through this agony too. So we did say, I just, we just can't do this again. I know now, I know the fact that I would have changed my mind going on. I just needed extra time this time. I didn't want to try again really quickly, which we had done previously. I knew I just needed time. But at the time we were saying, let's not try again. And um, then a miracle happened. And then I found out I was pregnant again. And the decision had been taken out of our hands prior to us even kind of making that decision, I must have conceived. Um, But because we weren't trying and we decided not to try, I wasn't even aware of the fact that um, my cycle hadn't started. Mm. and, um, And then I nearly fainted one day in the kitchen. And it made me think, could I be pregnant now? Couldn't be pregnant. And um, snuck off and did a pregnancy test and Mm. just couldn't believe it. It was showing I was pregnant. It was a stressful um, pregnancy. Anybody who will know pregnancy after loss is scary and frightening. Mm. But we got to bring that little one home. That's our little girl, Esme Amelia Promise. And um, and she's now 11 years old. Wow. 
Yeah, and um, she's our little miracle girl. And um, we actually only planned to have one child. We thought lots of our friends had only had one child. And so we were just like, okay, our family's complete. So after having her, we were, that's it, we're done. But it was when she was about a year old, we decided to, well, perhaps we should have another baby. Um, she'd, I bet she'd love a sibling. She loved children and she just clearly would have loved to have another person to play with. And that started mm-hmm. us thinking. So we decided to try again and very much thought our dealings with loss had ended because we'd brought her home. So whatever had been wrong had somehow been fixed. And um, so we went into this next pregnancy feeling really positive and considering we'd been through so much loss, we were really, really positive. The fact that the baby would come home with us. I was really sick through the pregnancy, um, going for regular scans because of our history. And it was in one of those scans where we were there with our little girl, Esme, and we were there as a family and the doctor was a friend and, um, Chris, the doctor was scanning me and his face just fell. And I just said, Chris, what, what's the matter? He said, I don't even know how to tell you. I don't even know how to tell you the words, but his heart has stopped beating. And um, we were back there again, exactly the same as we had been with Darcy. And um, our little boy, Samuel, had just died for no reason. His heart had been beating one moment and had just stopped the next. And, Did it um, bring back everything that was it like just going back to oh, it Darcy? Was horrible. It was horrible. There wasn't the layer of grief of will we ever get to raise a child yeah. because we'd got Esme, but there was a different layer of grief this time. Sure. It was it was the fact that will we ever be able to give her a sibling? Mm-hmm. Um, will she only be an only child? How do we protect her from this? Are we going to subject her to a life of grief if we try again? And, yeah, and all yeah. of these different things. So it was so different. We were also acutely aware of what we were losing. Yeah. We'd got a precious little girl in our home who brought us so much joy. So we imagined he was going to be exactly the same. There wasn't yeah. anything to imagine. We could almost see in yeah, front of, of our eyes what we were losing. Yeah, so gosh, yeah. the grief was so different. And you're met with so many other cliches and so many horrible sayings when you've already oh, got yeah. a child. Well, at least you've already got at a baby. At least you've already got at one. Least. Yeah. Yeah. At, at least, least, yeah. And so we, we had to navigate that. We decided to go the surgical route this time because I didn't want to wait potentially weeks to deliver him. Well, especially and, um, not with Esme at home. Esme, as well. absolutely. So we decided to go a different route and that in itself presented so many horrible decisions and, and so many horrible questions at the hospital and insensitivity and um etc but we survived it and um came out the other end and decided to try again we were expecting we told everybody on christmas eve that we were expecting again and then we started to bleed within minutes and um and we were told we had gone through loss again and that we'd gone through miscarriage again so that Christmas and New Year was horrible. And um, how old was Esme at this point? She was two or okay. nearly two, I think. She wasn't really aware what was going on. She was yeah. aware something was happening, but we just really focused on the fact of giving her a good Christmas. Yeah. At the same time, just grieving the fact that this is it. We aren't ever going to be able to have more children. I mean, this is yeah. just horrendous and horrible. And but I carried on getting sicker. 
and sicker and sicker. So it was in the January, um, Esme's birthday's in January. And um, I remember at her birthday party being so sick, I couldn't even speak to anybody who was there. I was just willing people to not even talk to me because I could hardly formulate words because I was so sick. I didn't know what was going on because obviously we'd already miscarried, but we decided to get a private consultant appointment. We weren't by Chris, our doctor, so we couldn't go and see him. So we just went to another doctor and it was there we were told that the doctors had got it wrong and we hadn't miscarried at all. <gasps> I was still pregnant. Yeah. How can they so, get that so wrong? Did you lose a lot of blood? Was I was it... bleeding every day and I was bleeding every day for 10 days. Right. Yeah. And so they were like, yeah, you've definitely miscarried and you've got a history of loss. There's no need to scan yeah. you. They just um, wrote you off. Yeah. And um, the scan, um, well, showed me I was pregnant. That's all it showed me because it was a really basic scan. So I decided to go and see Chris um, two weeks later, which I did. And at that scan, we were told I wasn't just having one baby. We were having twins. Oh, my goodness. So I went from being told we'd miscarried to um, actually you haven't miscarried and you're having two babies. We were in so much shock. But Chris did say during that appointment, one of the babies is a lot more developed than the other baby. And this can um, mean at times that one baby doesn't make it. He just told us to just be mindful of that, to be prepared, the fact that we might not bring two babies home. And you can't ever prepare for loss. You, it's, no. it's a myth that you can. But actually being told that made us a lot more mindful of the news we shared with people. It made us not go out and start buying two of everything. Yeah. Just, we were just more cautious than we would have been. And it's also about arming you with that knowledge is, is gives you the power to manage your expectations, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, and I, it just... It just made us take everything a lot more slowly, be a lot more cautious. And um, yeah, but the sickness that I'd started during that time increased. I was suffering terrible um, with hyperemesis and I was just so sick. But I felt there was something else actually going wrong with me. It didn't feel like just that. And I'd gone to my GP they said, look, you've just got extreme sickness. Um, mm. I'm sure there's nothing else wrong. I was like, I know my body. I've now been pregnant a lot of times. I've experienced extreme pregnancy sickness a lot of times. Um, I know my body and I really believe something's going wrong. And it turned out that my gallbladder was full of gallstones and was so infected, it was stuck to other internal organs. Mm. It was a very stressful pregnancy. I was extremely ill. I was told I was unlikely to make it. During that time, we then sadly lost one of the twins. We were told the fact that not only was I unlikely to pull through, that our other little one was unlikely to make it as well because I was so you ill. You were told that you, might, that you personally yeah. might die. I was might so die. I was so Terribly, oh yeah. my word! So you couldn't you have the gallbladder husband. operated on because you. They were didn't want it. They didn't want to operate because I was pregnant. Right. So they made a plan: the fact that they would get me to thirty-eight weeks, they would deliver the baby that was remaining, and um, and then they would 
take away my gallbladder and do the emergency surgeries that were needed. Um, but that clearly wasn't going to be possible because I was so sick. My obstetrician um, was saying she's not going to make it and neither is the baby if you don't operate before. But the liver team um, didn't want to go in and start doing anything else because they thought that um, they didn't want to be the ones responsible for potentially me dying on the operating table, but also losing our baby yeah. that was so longed for. And um, so it became a battle between lots of different medical teams that was really pr protracted. And um, I just got sicker and sicker. And um, eventually they decided that they couldn't wait any longer and they had to go in and do the surgery while I was pregnant. And um, so I had one surgery and then seven days later I went in for the big surgery and um, and I pulled through and our little one pulled through, but I didn't start getting any better. And um, they couldn't understand why I wasn't getting better, why in fact I was still getting worse when I then had the surgery. So they rushed me in for more tests and more scans and it turned out something very rare had happened. And just before they removed the whole gallbladder, a stone had flown out of the gallbladder and got stuck in a bile duct that was then now inaccessible because the oh gallbladder had been removed. <laughs> so it was horrible. It mm. was, um, we were then told that it was too dangerous to ever go back in and basically to just prepare that I could die and that the baby was very unlikely to make it. And the surgeons were unwilling to go back in because now it was even more dangerous than it had been the first time. And um, how do you deal with that? It yeah, was horrible. What did you do? It was horrible. I was, I just remember just looking at Esme and just bursting into tears constantly yeah. thinking, I'm not going to yeah. see her grow up. And yeah. she's going to be without a mum forever. And it was really hard to deal with. But also, I was so physically ill that. I didn't even have the physical capacity to kind of cope with what was going on. I was still suffering with extreme hyperemesis the whole time. So I was just vomiting night and day constantly. And, um, and this is where we really experienced my miracle because the only thing that could be done was prayer really. And so yeah. we were praying constantly and praying for a miracle and the doctors eventually agreed to do the surgery. Andy begged them. I remember sitting there and he begging the doctor and the doctor saying, I'm not willing to do this operation. It's far too dangerous. And then Andy said to him, but what happens if you don't do it? And they said, she'll, she'll die. And he said, but what if you don't do it? And they went, well, the likelihood is she'll die. And Andy went, yeah. then save my wife. Yeah, try something. Save oh. my wife. <laughs> and Andy was sobbing. and um, He must have been, I mean, for, for you, it was obviously incredibly, like, just horrendous but for for Andy he must oh. have felt so out of control of everything and awful. had Esme there and had you there and had your little unborn baby there and just mm. I mean what the what the blooming heck do you do in that situation mm. as know. a support how do you awful. support that situation well he just begged and he just said to the doctor I remember him saying look if this was your wife what would you want them to do and the doctor said I'd want them to operate I'd want them to save her and then Andy said then do it for my wife mm. And, and oh. he just sat there and he said, I'll do it. I'll do the surgery. 
And then they sent me for another emergency MRI. They said before they could take me in to do the surgery, they needed the MRI imaging again, which I'd already had. And um, all the scans had shown the stone was too big to pass naturally. And the duct wasn't big enough for it to pass through. But they needed to have everything laid out before going in Mm. um, to alleviate more of the risk to me and the baby because this time they were going to have to go in by my spine by my back because of being pregnant and where everything was they were going to have to go in in reverse and lay me flat during theatre instead of the conventional way so we went for the emergency MRI and then we were sent home to wait for the results so I could just wait in my bed at home and um, and then we got a phone call from the head of um, the doctor who's in charge of the scanning and he said you're just not going to believe it and we said what and he went the stone's vanished the stone has gone it's no longer there and that was our miracle mm. and um, from oh that point gosh. on I got better and better and better overnight the stone had just vanished blimey yeah that's it was amazing it was incredible. amazing it was amazing the tears the joy oh, the relief. Yeah. I'm gonna live I'm going to survive this. Going to see Esme grow up. I know. Oh, my goodness. My mom and dad were there. Everyone was sobbing hysterically. It was just such a miracle and such an amazing moment. And I got better and better after that. It Mm. took months to gain my strength. I carried on with the hypermesis and the sickness and, and everything. But all the pain started to go. And I was able to walk and move around and do normal stuff and function and and be a mum again to Esme, being able to play with her again. And and it was just amazing. And um, I was scheduled to have a C-section at 38 weeks. Um, But a week before, five days before, um, my C-section was due. I started to itch uncontrollably. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I know what this is. And I was just like, no, this can't oh. happen. I've incurred, endured so much during this. Yeah, right. I had to suffer with so much. There's no way I can have something else. I phoned up my consultant. I said, I, in the middle of the night, I said, I think I've developed cholestasis. And he said, Zoe, I really, I doubt you have at this stage, <laughs> but come in at nine o'clock and we'll do some blood tests. Um, had the blood test done. At 4 p.m., I got a phone call to say, um, you've developed cholestasis and it's so bad, you need to be immediately delivered. So they agreed the fact that um, they would do, as long as I could go to the hospital that night, because I was being delivered in London, they would deliver her um, early the following morning. And everything went beautifully. And I lost less blood than a natural delivery. And again, they said that was miraculous. You've had a really easy ride, it sounds like. Really yeah. plain sailing the whole no way dramas. through. <laughs> so, so what's your second so daughter simple. called? Bronte Jemima Hope. Oh, oh that's lovely. Love first name. Yeah. How so old is she? Esme, Amelia Promise and Bronte Jemima Hope. Um, she just turned nine. Okay. Amazing. Wonderful. And so did that you is... decide to call it a day then? Yeah, well, there was <laughs> Why? no way we were going to go back down that thing. And even physically, after going through so much, there was no way I was willing to risk any more um, loss. And, and yeah. 
and because of obviously having to face that whole pregnancy of thinking that Esme could be without a mum, there was no way I could do that to either of them again. And thinking, even though the issue had been obviously resolved physically, it was still, it had shown me how you can lose your life for Mm. having children. And I wasn't willing to do that to either of them and Mm. so we definitely said that's it whether we want more or not it's not an option and because what's more important is being here to raise them yeah Yeah. for sure absolutely okay well that's it for this episode join us in episode 21 to hear about how zoe has gone on to use her experiences to help other people bye for now Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. (laughs) To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.